want to welcome you. I'm so happy to be here this morning. Every time that uh, uh, we come to Chattanooga, it seems like we get a bigger blessing. Uh, the blessing, as I told the men yesterday, uh, the first time we were here, we went home and the wind had blown the roof off and we had to spend $10,000 to get the roof and thank God for insurance. And uh, then the second time last year, we had a traffic accident. We're still waiting for the reimbursement from the, the uh, insurance company on that one. Uh, but uh, this year, everything has gone well, except for my right hearing aid. My right hearing aid is kaput. And I have to turn that into the VA and get it back in the mail a couple of days later. So the turnaround time is difficult. Uh, I was complaining when I got here the first time or the second time or the third time, nobody ever gave me a t-shirt. You know, I was hoping, hoping that somebody in the congregation give me a Tennessee uh, Volunteers t-shirt or a Georgia Bulldogs t-shirt and then at the last resort, I, I wanted to scrape the bottom of the barrel and get an Alabama t-shirt. And, and now I have some information, some intelligence that I've uh, developed uh, in the researching the congregation. And I, I understand there is a t-shirt waiting for me in some brown paper bag somewhere. So if you see me wearing a, a t-shirt uh, and I'm going to write a message in the back of it, I went to Chattanooga and all I got was this t-shirt. So anyhow, today uh, I want to uh, take us to a complimentary message of what I get, uh, spoke yesterday. And if you want to get the message that I spoke yesterday or the teaching that I gave, as I said to the men yesterday, uh, an elder told me one time, he said, I don't know what you do up there, but it's not preaching. And uh, so I guess I do teaching instead of preaching. But anyhow, uh, I would like to continue a theme that I started to develop yesterday, and that was talking about whether or not the, there is a rapture and whether or not there is a pre-trib rapture or post-trib rapture, or whatever the case may be. When I was a young man and uh, first going to seminary, that was almost a solid, uh, mutually agreed upon issue. There was no debate about it. But as the years developed and research continued, uh, more and more people have found that is unacceptable in their theological understanding. So I want us to go together to two major portions of scripture. One, I want us to turn to Genesis chapter 6 and keep your thumb in there or your bookmark in there. And I also want you to go then as a compliment to Matthew chapter 25, about verse 36. And we'll talk about that uh, in a little while here. Let's see what I can bring this up where I want it so it's on the screen. And uh, I made a prophetic prediction, did I not, yesterday? Where's Alan? Alan? Uh, did I not prophesy yesterday during the service that I would sit alone at the table at the dining uh, part of the service, the meal portion, and no one would come and ask me questions? And that happened. And that happened. I don't know whether it was Carl 
or whether it was Tracy who came and sat and talked to me because they're, they look so much alike. <laughs> but uh, but uh, someone, someone did come and talk to me and ask me questions, so I have to apologize for that. Uh, let me make a correction here on my, my PowerPoint. I have two blank pages there, which I don't want. I'll delete that one. Well, there we go. Delete that one. And then go down and delete this one. And now we'll go up to the top of the page. As in the days of Noah, so it shall be also in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. We want to talk a little bit about Noah, and if any of you have not gone to see the ark, it's over in Kentucky, and being from Arkansas, I thought that was an appropriate place to go to look for the ark. I wanted drove down to Arkadelphia, and the ark wasn't there, and they said, no, it's over in Kentucky. So if you want to see what the ark really looks like, you go over to Kentucky to see it, and you will find, you will be amazed at the size of the ark. I just, just could not believe it, and it's all the scale, it's all the biblical scale, and it's it's just the most amazing thing. I I took my little motor scooter that I ride uh, for, uh, help me walk around, uh, my, I call it one Walmart scooter, and I went up the three decks and down and all around. It was just the most amazing thing. I encourage every Christian to go over and see it. But as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the days of the Son of Man. Now in Genesis 5, 14, 5 and 14, we have the introduction to the Noah story, and in it God told Noah that he was going to destroy the earth because of wickedness. That's nothing new. Wickedness is nothing new, it's not a surprise to God. God had a remedy already in place back at the Garden of Eden for uh, the wickedness of mankind. However, God seldom executes instantaneous judgment. In other words, if we would, uh, if he would punish sin immediately, then no one would sin and probably no one would be alive. But God said or told Noah that he would extend 120 years of grace to mankind while Noah was building the ark, did he not? Now, We've been talking yesterday a little bit in, in the conversations that I've had with uh, men and women uh, over at Mark uh, and Diane's home. We've been talking about the number 120. The number 120 reappears in uh, key places in the scripture. I'm not fully cognizant of what the, the meaning or the symbolism is there, but we have 120 years of grace and I assume that that is three generations of 40. A biblical generation is about 40 years, so God let people stand in their wickedness for three generations. And that tells us something. God normally warns us of a coming judgment with three generations or three witnesses. In other words, when uh, John the Baptist came, he spoke, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He never said repent for the grace of God is at hand. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Then 
Jesus came and had exactly the same message. Jesus never preached the gospel of the grace of God. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. His message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. And then the third witness sometimes we miss, and that were the apostles when Peter stood up in Pentecost and the day after uh, the next sermon that he preaches, he said, it's time for you to repent and be baptized and then the Lord who must stay in heaven until the refreshing of the restitution of all things will come back. So that was the third offer of the kingdom of God and it was turned down and it was uh, finally refused in Acts chapter 28 where Paul quotes the same uh, passage of scripture from the Old Testament and Isaiah telling what happened to the nation of Israel when they did not repent. So, God told Noah that he was to extend 120 years of grace to mankind while Noah was building the ark. Now, uh, he needed some help building the ark, so he had three sons. I heard someone say the other day online or on, uh, on the YouTube that the, the three sons were triplets. Um, I don't think that's correct. I think there's an interim gap between some of the birth there. So you have to always listen carefully to what's being taught or said on TV. Now let's look a little bit longer here. The cause of all the wickedness. Why was everybody so wicked so soon? It's interesting that the Hebrew word for wickedness is Hamas. Does that sound familiar? It's the name of the Palestinian uh, terrorist organization. The evil was not only caused by Adam and Eve's rebellion in the Garden of Eden, it was caused by the descent of the watchers, the sons of God in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, who by cohabitation with human beings created the Nephilim, the giants. And there's some evidence in the extra biblical literature that the giants practiced cannibalism. That's where we get the idea of Jack and the Beanstalk and the giant up in heaven coming down the Beanstalk and practicing cannibalism. There's a lot of giants in literature and we wonder where they came from. They are the Nephilim. And for the young men sitting here, the Nephilim are still with us, right? Sir. Who's your favorite Nephilim? Yeah. <laughs> He's a Nephilim, huh? Well, I don't want to argue about the point, but the point is that Hollywood is just full of Nephilim. Who is your favorite female superhero? Mine is Wonder Woman. What about it? She's a nice Jewish lady who, who used to be in the Israeli Defense Forces, very attractive. However, in her character role, her father was Zeus, the king of the gods, and her mother was the head of the Amazons here on earth. She was half God and half human. That is a definition of a Nephilim. And if you look at the characters that Marvel Comics uh, generate, you will feel, find Nephilim all over the place as a means by Satan to soften up the culture to the future acceptance of half man, half uh, uh, human demigod. These guys brought not only cohabitation or uh, 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 spirit, combination of spirit and humans, they brought knowledge. And that's something that the, the Bible doesn't discuss. They brought hidden knowledge. They, 
They taught women how to adorn themselves with cosmetics to look beautiful. They taught uh, magical arts. They taught sorcery to mankind. And so mankind became totally evil very quickly prior to the flood. Now, here's a principle I want us to understand, and I'm maybe overstating my case here, maybe over my stating my case, but God always protects the righteous. You say, well, what about the martyrs? Well, the martyrs are secure because God has put them through the martyrdom, but he's going to resurrect them from the dead. So I'm going to bail out of my position on that. But God told Noah in Genesis 6.14 to make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms, compartments, or nests. The word could mean either one of the three in the ark. Cover it inside and outside with pitch. The word for ark is the same word used for the ark of the covenant, which we'll find later in the book of Exodus. Now, one of the things that kind of jumped out at me when we were touring the ark, and it had many rooms, it had many storage compartments. You could feed a whole army with what the capacity of the ark was. But I thought to myself, you know, this might be an allusion to John 14. In my father's house are many mansions, apartments, or dwelling houses, or dwelling places. Uh, I used to kind of laugh where people say, well, I got a, a mansion over the hillside in the, that fair land where we never grow old. Isn't that one it says? Well, a mansion, when the King James uh, version was translated did not mean a necessarily big house it meant a house where a noble lived so the person who lived in the house gave the mansion like status to it it didn't mean it had 26 rooms and 17 bathrooms and that sort of thing a mansion was a place where a nobleman lived so uh, Jesus is saying in my father's house are places for nobility, for ruling people, for kings and priests and things like that. And I think he's making an allusion to the temple. I think he's making an allusion to the temple. Everyone goes to John 14 and says, oh my goodness, he's talking about heaven. Maybe. So, if you go back to John chapter 2 though, Jesus says in the very same words, he says, you have made my father's house a den of thieves. He's talking about the earthly temple. But you and I know that like on earth, so also in heaven. So there's a heavenly temple and there's an earthly temple, which is an imitation or a model of the uh, heavenly temple. So the idea of having many apartments or many dwelling places alludes to two things. It alludes to the temple where the priests had housing attached to the temple, but it also alludes to the fact that the bride of Christ is being addressed here because the custom was, and we'll talk about that in a little while here, the custom was when a young man got betrothed to a young lady in the Jewish culture, what he did was go back to his father's house and add a room to the place because the, the daughter-in-law, the bride of the bridegroom lived with the family 
so that the mother could teach her how to treat the son the way the mother had when they were uh, when she was being he was being brought up. So the idea of many apartments, many dwelling places suggests to us the time when the bride departs this earth and goes to her heavenly dwelling place, uh, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God at the end of the age. And it suggests that every time a new believer comes to faith in Christ, what happens? The son builds another room onto the place. So the temple in heaven is not yet finished. There are many more dwelling places there waiting for occupied uh, occupants to come ahead. Also, the idea of covering the ark both inside and outside with pitch sounds a lot like the temple later on in scripture, which Solomon covered with gold both inside and outside. The work of the, the, the Holy Spirit and the work of the atonement, uh, if it only works on the outside, it's not sufficient. Jesus told us that in the book of Matthew. He said, if you only clean up the outside, you're like a whitewashed tomb. Inside, you have dead men bones. But if you believe in me, not only do I take care of the outside activity, the outside appearance, but I renew you from the inner side to cleanse the inner heart of man, and then you're acceptable to the Lord and the Father. So the idea of the ark suggests the idea of covering both inside and outside. The word for gopher wood, which wood we no one has been able to figure out, is really kapar, which is the word used on the Day of Atonement. Remember the high priest used to go into the Holy of Holies and spread the blood on the mercy seat, which was fixed to the top of the ark. It's an allusion to the Day of Atonement. The shedding on the blood of the inside of the ark provides the atonement and protects the people inside the ark. Now, Jesus in his statement here, just like in the days of Noah, so also in the days of the Son of Man, I'm just throwing this in as, a, as an additional nugget, let's say, a sidebar, just as a sidebar, Noah and Jesus shared the same birthday, did they not? So it was very appropriate that Jesus would compare the two errors. And if you want to uh, dig into it deeply enough, uh, go to Revelation chapter 12 and look at how the stars are aligned and the constellations there. They have done that and they have figured out that Jesus was born, are you ready for this? September 11, 9-11, 3 BC. That's the only time all the stars and the constellations that are revealed in uh, Revelation chapter 12 align. So it was very appropriate that Jesus would connect with Noah rather than any of the other Old Testament worthies that he had a chance to interact with. Now, my favorite song, my favorite verse, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord and he landed high and dry, I think the song says. Genesis 6, chapter 6, verse 8. Now some people, including very recognized TV preachers say that the ark is a picture of Jesus. I can't see that. can't see that at all. Unfortunately, I disagree with them. Now, when I was in seminary, I was a security guard. 
It was probably the greatest job I've ever had in my life because I could sit at a security desk all night long and study and read and write and master what. I also picked up a part-time job as a grading assistant for my professor. And he had me grading a quiz one time. And one of the questions was, what do the initials M-A-R-C stand for? It was an acronym for some kind of doctrine or organization. And uh, one guy who did not know the correct answer came up with the idea that it was a mission association of Roman Catholics. That was his suggestion for what it meant. But the one I liked best was the guy who also didn't know the correct answer. He said, make your ark the resurrected Christ. I said, two points for be, being creative in that answer. I think the ark is more a picture of heaven and more specifically the rapture. And we will discover why I believe that here in a little while. In any case, the whole judgment scene in Noah and Noah's ark is a grace operation. You and I should understand what grace. We're saved by grace. What does that mean? Can someone give me a definition of grace? Don't say it out loud. Think it in your mind. What do you believe grace to be? And most people will say, oh, it's uh, uh, God's uh, something that God's punishment at Christ's expense or something like that. Some thing that's real catchy but doesn't mean anything and it's not very helpful. Listen to me carefully. Grace is God giving you the power and the motivation to do his will, Philippians chapter two. So when you're asking for God to have grace, you're asking him to give you the power to do his will, which in many cases we really don't want to do because it entails suffering. So, let's talk a little bit about grace. Grace protects from the wrath of God. Genesis 6:14. The ark could not be polluted or uh, by sin or touched by the water of judgment since the pitcher or the bitumen kept it protected on the inside and the outside. Grace not only protects you on the outside, it protects you on the inside. Grace sustains you during the wrath of God. The measurements of the ark were huge. The measurements were 300 by 50 by 30 or more than 450,000 cubic feet. The ark was sufficient to carry Noah and his family and whatever animals he carried for the good part of a year. I like this one. Grace makes a fool of other demonically inspired religions. One of the principles God establishes earlier in the scripture is the principle, principle of the solitary door. And let me say that again. One of the principles God establishes early in the scriptures is the principle of the solitary door. The Garden of Eden had one entrance. The Ark had one entrance. The Tabernacle had one entrance. Now, Think back with me to the Garden of Eden. Many people don't think sufficiently about the Garden of Eden. Did it have a wall around it? The answer is yes. 
And in many of our minds, when we say the Garden of Eden, we think of our vegetable garden. We're out there planting rows and doing things like that and having fresh vegetables. Not at all. The word paradise, which is another name, for, uh, the Greek word for uh, the Garden of Eden, paradise, is a Persian loan word which means a walled garden, a palace garden, a garden that the king met with his courtiers in. In the country of Korea, where my wife is from, they call it the secret garden. You can go visit it. And there's a big wall around the garden, and that was so the king and whoever he preferred to associate with at a present time could not be looked upon by the commoners, the nobility, the high-class people, the people that were important figures in the kingdom were there. Or, or I, may I suggest to you in the modern day and age, the divine council was there. The divine council met in the Garden of Eden. Someone has observed the ark as the shape of a coffin. More than likely, it is the coffin of Osiris in pagan religion. And many times in the scripture, the Lord will make fun of other religions because they can't do the job that he has told you that he can do. And we need to be aware of that and cognizant when the Lord is making fun of other religions. Uh, don't want to be too lewd and graphic, but do you remember Elijah encountering the priests of Baal on the top of uh, Mount uh, Carmel? Everybody remember that? Do you remember what uh, uh, Elijah said to the priest? Probably not, because it's not properly translated. The editors couldn't handle it. Elijah said, cry out louder, perhaps Baal is covering his feet. <clears throat> now who knows what it means to cover your feet? Anyone that's been a deer hunter knows what it means to cover your feet. If you have to go potty in the wilderness, you drop your trousers and cover your feet with your trousers. That's what it means. So Elijah is saying, perhaps your God that's supposed to be sending fire on this, uh, this sacrifice that you have prepared is in the bathroom. And another thing he says, perhaps he's pursuing. <coughs> and in the history of Baal, that means perhaps he's pursuing women. So Elijah is out there mocking the priests of Baal because they can't do the job that uh, the that Yahweh can do it. So here we have another uh, another principle in the scripture. We have the uh, the mocking of the other nations or other gods' religion. <coughs> Excuse me. Structure of the ark. The ark had three decks which imitates what Paul said later in New Testament about the three heavens. Other structures in the Bible have a three-part structure as well, the tabernacle, the temple, and the believer. When did the cruise begin? Uh, I waffle on this. I suspect that if we look and compare the dates, that it either began on the Day of Atonement because the temple doors are closed in the Day of Atonement, or it began on Passover, 
Why? Because Noah selected the animals to go on the ark on the tenth of Nisan, and then uh, the uh, the uh, three days later, it was seventeenth of Nisan when God closed the door on the ark. So I'm thinking it either starts at Passover, but the ark rested in the seventh month, the seventeenth day. That's the end of the voyage. This was the third day of the Feast of Passover, which we call the Feast of First Fruits, when Jesus rose from the dead. This is a very significant day. God repeats days over and over again in Scripture. It was when Israel crossed the Red Sea. It was when the manna stopped. It was when Haman, the uh, uh, Agagite, was destroyed by Esther. Now, Noah pictures for us how grace operates. I'm going to use three prepositions here. We are saved by grace. Noah was saved by grace. He didn't have to do anything. He just had to build the ark and get into it. We are saved by grace through faith. Noah had to get on the ark. He was allowed to get on because he was righteous as well as his family. Then we are saved by grace through faith onto good works. We're not saved by works, but the purpose of for the purpose of doing good works. And in Genesis 9-1, God repeats the command which he initially gave to Adam, go forward, fill the earth, multiply and fill the earth with men and women, boys and girls, descendants, who are my imagers, who are created in my image. So God's initial purpose was to set up his headquarters, his temple, his dwelling place in the Garden of Eden, and his purpose was then to expand his dominion over the rest of the earth. And lo and behold, as we get to the end of the book in Revelation chapter 20, we see the garden restored. As I said last time I was here, we got to get back to the garden. Grace provides security. God did not tell Noah to go into the ark. He told him to come into the ark. Did you notice that in some of your translations? God, the, the second person of the Godhead, the second Yahweh uh, in the Old Testament, is, becomes embodied and was on the ark. Christ was on the ark. Now, I did not bring my Bible up here, but I would like you to turn to Genesis chapter 19, verse 24. And we're at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels and the Lord had uh, come and talked to Abraham. They had a meal together. And then the Lord looked towards Sodom. And that's when Abraham started bargaining with him. He says, there's 50 righteous there. Will you, will you let it alone? Yeah. If there's 30? Yeah. And he got him down to 10. And he said, yes, if there's 10 righteous people there, I will spare the city. There weren't 10. There were not 10 in the city because Abraham had miscounted. But the Lord was there. And it says in Genesis 19, 24, I'm quoting from memory here, it says, and the Lord rain down fire from Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord. How does that work? All you potential Jehovah's Witnesses? 
There's two Yahweh's in the Old Testament. There's one on earth in that verse, and there's one in heaven. The one on earth is calling to the one in heaven and says, bring it on. So there's a second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we know later when he became man. He's all over the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord, the messenger of God, the one who actually physically appears to people. And by the way, uh, people get goofy ideas about the sons of, God, the sons of God and the daughters of men passage, and their goofy idea is that they could not possibly be angels because angels are spirit and uh, human females are, are flesh, and you can't mix the two categories together. But it says there in the uh, passage of Sodom and Gomorrah that the two individuals that went to uh, Lot were looked like men. Angels can become men. Did you know that? Spirit beings can turn into men. That's why they got in trouble with the Lord and he can find them at targets. Security is in the side of the rainbow. Oh my goodness. Our culture has taken that sign and perverted it. God renews the covenant with Noah. In any covenant making procedure, there has to be a sign or a seal. The rainbow or the battle bow is now hung on the wall of the king in the heavenly city. You know, bow and arrows are dangerous weapons. And when God hung the rainbow in the sky, he said, this weapon is no longer pointed at you down on the earth. He says, the rainbow is a sign of the fact that I will not destroy the earth by water anymore. My wrath has been settled by the flood, and therefore I'm going to hang up my bow. I'm not going to use it anymore. But then in Revelation chapter 5, and I know the majority of people like to think that the white horse rider is the Antichrist, but he's not, he's, he's Christ. He takes the battle bow off the wall and says, get me my horse, I'm ready to go. We're going to back and we're going to take back the earth from those usurpers who stole it from us. And lo and behold, instead of Joshua crossing into the promised land, we have the Lord Jesus Christ riding a white horse and taking the armies of heaven and conquering the earth and putting the enemies to the sword, the sword which he wears on his side, because the sword is for close-in fighting and the battle bow is for long-range fighting. God destroyed the world with water in the time of Noah. He's going to destroy the world again with fire in the time of the return of Jesus. Both, this and that, both of these destructions were prophesied already by Adam in the non-biblical literature. The 10th prophets descending from Adam knew about Adam's prediction. Now, even though it's been 2,000 years since Jesus went away, it's only been two days in the eyes of the Lord, and always look out for the day number three. That's when something really happens. Many times we live in this world and things get tough and uh, we're alone or we're dejected, we have a disaster and we want God to do something. 
Why hasn't God done something? Why does God allow this? Why does God do this? Why did the nation rise up against the nation? Why is all this uh, martyrdom uh, going on, this genocide in Africa against Christians, no less? Well, the answer is he has done something, but you only realize it when you walk by a cross on the, east, uh, the hill east of Jerusalem. God is waiting for Israel to repent and for all the Gentiles to be saved, which just might include the lost tribes who have entered into the Gentile world and lost their identity. The day of the rapture equals the day of judgment for us. It will come like a thief in the night and the thief gives no advanced warning signs. According to the New Testament, According to the New Testament, the promise of the rapture, of the escape, of the getting on the ark comes only to the overcomers, not to the Christmas Easter Christian or the knife and fork Christian. And I hope you know what I mean by that. Noah got on the ark poor and he came out rich. And that's for all who have embraced the wealth and prosperity gospel. Now, are we doing time-wise? Where's Alan? When are you going to keep drag me? Keep, keep? A couple more minutes. Okay. Let's go now to Matthew 24. Yeah, you're going to have to drag me kicking and screaming from the pulpit this morning. Let's learn a little language this morning. Remember what I talked about yesterday? Idioms. Idioms are things that say something that's completely opposite of what they mean, like an idiom is it's raining cats and dogs, but it's not literally raining cats and dogs. Now, Christians have stumbled over this uh, particular idiom. Now, concerning the day and the hour, Matthew 24, verse 36. Oh, by the way, the Olivet Discourse, no one seems to want to answer the question there's three questions that start the discourse, are, is there not, in 24.1? No one seems to want to address the issue in what order did Jesus answer the questions? He was asked three questions by the disciples that came to him and they said, uh, what, when shall this happen? What shall be the sign of the coming? And what shall be the sign of the end of the age? Really, in the original language, it's, uh, it's two questions with the second question having part A and part B. And nobody goes to this passage of scripture and seemingly asks the question, in what order does Jesus answer the questions? And here's a rule for you. Whenever there's two or three questions asked before a passage of scripture starts, the writer always answers the last question first. And I can prove that in Romans chapter eight and First uh, Corinthians 15 and numerous other passages of scripture. But when you're studying the scripture and there's a rhetorical or a question asked at the beginning of the passage, always ask in what order does the, the speaker want to answer the question? And uh, one of the most misunderstood Jewish figures of speech by the church over the years is concerns Yeshua's phrase no one knows that day or hour, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. In the context, 
he refers to the home taking of his bride, the beginning of the Messianic era, and his millennial reign as king of kings over all the earth. To understand this concept, we must look at the foundation. The annual Jewish festival of trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah, or the Jewish New Year, is the first day of the seventh month. And these are the things that the Jews believed or called, expected to happen on this day. Number one, it was the day of the resurrection because there were 30 days of repentance prior. Number two, it was the day of coronation of the Messiah or King of Israel. Number three, it was the day of the marriage feast of the Messiah. And most interesting to me is it's called the day of our concealment. Rosh Hashanah is not only the start of the day of the Lord, but also the day of the resurrection. It has to do with the moon and its 29 day cycle of renewal. Some sources call it the day of the awakening blast. Why did Jesus all of a sudden lose his prophetic vision in the passage? Failing to think like Jesus and taking phrases out of Jewish context can lead one to misunderstand his words. For example, in many places of the New Covenant, Jesus talked, knew the future and talked about it openly. In this chapter, he warned his disciples about his, their future, saying, see, I've told you ahead of the time. Now, all of a sudden, he gets to the place, he says, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the sun, or nor the angels in heaven. What's he talking about? His context concerned the tribulation, the destruction of the temple, the rise of the false messiahs. If he knew the future in Matthew 24, 25, and the context concerns the day of trouble, why would he suddenly speak as though he did not know the future in the same context just 11 verses later in Matthew 24, 36? Was he confused? Or was he making perfect sense in light of the customs of the Jews? In Hebrew, these observances have also always been called God's appointed times, or Moedim, literally a sacred and set time. From God's perspective, the appointed times belong to him, and no one has the authority to change the celebration of an appointed time. To do so was a serious matter of great sin. Appointed times had to be kept because of their messianic implication. So, since the day of the festival is often referred to as the marriage day of the Messiah, Jesus in this verse is referring to the marriage customs of the Jews. The group would have gazed the bride, as I said earlier, which was legally binding, which he drank a cup of wine that he offered. You saw a good-looking young lady, you found out where she lived, and you would go visit the house, and you would pour a cup of wine and set it in front of her. As long as she did not drink it, she was not committed. If she drank the cup, you were engaged. At that time, rather than making plans for the ceremony, you, went, you hit the door running, probably, and went to your father's house and started working on the extra room. Now the father had the final say in this. Before the bridegroom could go and get the bride, the groom's father had to be satisfied that the son had made every preparation, that he had not constructed a piece of junk because he was in haste to get married. In other words, the bridegroom was working on the bridal chamber. It was the father 
who approved the final bridal chamber. It was not the son who made the decision. Apparently, Jesus had no problem with the historicity of Noah. He was a comparative verse in verse 37, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. According to Genesis 9, 29, the days of Noah were 950 years. This included the translation of Enoch, at least, as a cultural memory. By the way, Enoch was the father of Methuselah. His name means, when he is dead, it shall come. How would you like to walk around for 950 years with a name like that? <coughs> so Methuselah and the three boys of Noah worked together on building the ark. And he, being a prophet, knew that the flood was coming. And when the Methuselah died, that's when Noah got on the ark. What were they doing? They were eating and drinking with drunkards, compared to Deuteronomy 21.38. They were marrying and giving in marriage or multiplying wives, consider the sons of God passage. Or this statement may just be referring to ordinary activities. And... One more comparison seems appropriate. On the Day of Atonement, the ten temple doors are closed. This compares favorably with the Lord closing the, dark, the door to Noah's ark. Noah was a Gentile. The translation occurs today. The majority of those transformed without dying will be Gentile. This is in contrast to the previous section in Matthew 24, where the subject under discussion was obviously Messianic Jews. Interestingly, the previous session, section dealt with the sign of the Son of Man. If Planet X caused the flood of Noah, then it would indeed be the, like the days of Noah. We didn't talk much about Planet X or the planet Nibiru or the planet Sedna. There is a summary or amount of scientific research now that suggests there's an extra planet in our solar system, but it has a 3,000 year uh, rotation cycle. It comes and goes. It's irregular. You can't predict when it is. My thinking is that the flood of Noah was called by, caused by a penetration of this planet, and what it did was tilt the earth on its axis. Originally, when God created the earth, the earth spun in a vertical position, just like a top. The planet Sedna came along, the planet Nibiru, the planet X came along, and the, geo, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the forces that it created, the, the gravity forces that it created were so powerful that it tilted the earth into its axis and caused a tidal wave that carried the arc completely around the earth. Now, having said that, uh, some people will deny that. You have to go to YouTube and sort out what is fact and what is fiction here. But if that happens, then the sign of the sun of the coming of the Son of Man is of the return of that planet. They did not know, they had no spiritual understanding, or they would have responded to Noah's 120 years of preaching until the day Noah entered the ark. Remember the Lord entered the ark, and Noah entered the ark, and the Lord closed the one door, and they sat for seven days before the rain came probably 
in mourning for Methuselah's death. Rain came down and the floods came up. Floods swept them all away to physical death, swept with the connotation of force, according to the, the dictionary. It will be like that at the time the Son of Man comes. In Revelation 19, 17, and 18, we see a great feast and the carrying eating birds coming to the feast of the dead bodies of those who oppose the second coming. It's the same picture as the flood. Now we get into deep water, no pun intended. The word which is normally translated take in verse 40 changes to paralumbano, which means to take into close fellowship, to marry, to arrest. One shall be taken, another shall be left. That's what I'm talking about. Matthew uses the word in 120 when he quotes the angel who says, Fear not to take unto you Mary. In 124 he says, He took unto him his wife. Paralumbano means to take a wife, folks. Matthew 2, 13, 14, 20, and 21 talks about taking the baby Jesus to Egypt and back to Israel again. An especially important parallel is found in Matthew 4, 5, and 8, where Satan apparently takes the human body of Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, which is 40 stories high, and later took him to an exceedingly high mountain. Let's look at this. Think about meeting us meeting the Lord in the air. That's the pinnacle of the temple. Jesus was and Satan were standing right at the topmost corner till you went down to the bottom of the temple. It was 40 stories, 400 foot drop. How did Jesus get the body of Jesus? I mean, how did uh, Satan get the body of Jesus up there? Why, it's easy if you know how to levitate somebody. Magicians have been doing it for years and centuries. So when you are a spirit being as powerful as Satan is, you can defy the laws of gravity and up, up, and away you go. So that's what's being contained in this word take. Matthew 12, 45 talks about a demon taking seven demons back to the house where he was cast out. Several cases the word is used to describe the Lord's action in taking certain, uh, certain disciples with him. And finally in 27, 27, that says that the Lord, the soldiers took Jesus into the common hall. John 14, 3 uses the word parallel mono in a passage talking about the return of Christ. I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and take you to myself. That is Jesus receiving the bride, taking her away from what's about to happen. Now here's the bad news. The opposite word in that text, one shall be taken and another left behind, is afiemi, the classic word meaning to forgive. According to the standard Greek dictionary, it means to let go, send away with a personal object, to cancel, remit, pardon, to leave, to allow, permit, tolerate. However, Paul has a unique usage in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 7, 12. And he following it is used in the unique sense of divorce. If paralambano means to take a wife, then surely the opposite meaning is to divorce a wife. What is being threatened here is separation from the bride. This explains the separation consequences 
of the following parable. Yes, some people will have to go through the tribulation. The day of rapture is the day of judgment, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the word of God? source of Peter's words were deeply rooted in, in the context of the high holy days. That judgment begins first with the people of God. For the covenant people of the Lord are judged to be righteous. A reward of the natsal, which is a Hebrew word, awaits them. Natsal is a Hebrew word that means the calling out or the plucking away of the nobles. Men and women are equal in this uh, situation. Verse 24 talks about the men, the two men will be in the field, one taken, one another left, one will be taken, uh, it talks about the women, two will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, another left. What are we, and he warns us then that we should be careful to watch, and what are we to watch, Netflix? Let's do some comparison with other verses. We are to watch and pray, lest we enter into temptation, to sin or apostasy. On the one hand, the spirit is willing. On the other hand, the flesh is weak. We are to keep watching in order to receive a blessing, Luke 12, 37. We are to watch by standing firm in the faith, no apostasy. We are to watch by exercising self-control, 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. We are to watch because of the prowling of the devil. We are to watch by strengthening the things that remain, by completing a life of good works. We are to watch so that Yeshua or Jesus will confess our name before the Father. We are to watch so that we do not lose our garments of glory. And the final question that we end with, Will you watch? Now, I know that's a lot of material, but I thought it was important that you get a handle on that. I understand that we're going to have a pre-trigger rapture, but I'm afraid that not everybody is going to go.